just going to make another adjustment. Dancing in the moonlight. Is that better? It's cut me in its spotlight. It's all right. Dancing in the moonlight. Free hearing aids with PRSI at Specsavers. Music to your ears. Find out more online. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Connor Faulkner and this is Driving Life. Welcome to episode 23, where I meet international aid and development worker Deirdre Murray. Deirdre works for Plan International Ireland, which is the Irish part of a big global charity that specialises in supporting education and the rights of girls. I'm the current chair of the Irish board. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Frankie Sheehan, Theresa Mannion, George Hook, Geraldine Herbert, Dermot Ferreter and others. They're all listed together nicely on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. But now let's meet Deirdre. We had just come back from a trip to Guinea-Bissau in West Africa, a small country that I knew virtually nothing about before I went. It's an ex-Portuguese colony that has struggled with instability, desperate poverty and a near total lack of infrastructure. Plan Ireland works there in partnership with Irish Aid and Deirdre had travelled to visit and audit the work and to see firsthand what's being achieved. I tagged along and when we got back to Dublin, I recorded this chat with her. Hello, Deirdre Murray. Hi, Connor. Very nice to be here talking to you. I know, very nice to be here. This is the strangest place where you and I have ever had a conversation um, because, because uh, we, we, we met in Dublin Airport and then spent a week together in West Africa. Uh, in Guinea-Bissau, a small country of Guinea-Bissau. Uh, we'll obviously chat about that, but a uh, fascinating place in which to meet you. Um, novel experience for me, all in a day's work for you. Um, yeah, let us know who you are and what it is you do. Indeed. Yeah, well, um, I've worked for many years in kind of international development and I've had a long career um, working in lots of different locations, um, initially as a VSO in China. Voluntary service overseas. Yes, yeah. indeed. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, and that, oh, that's gone back a long time now. I was in China at the time of Tiananmen Square and all the right. student protests and so on. Um, afterwards, I worked in with some national organisations here in Ireland and I've worked with a no number of other international NGOs. Um, I spent six years living and working in Ethiopia, right. which was fascinating and yeah. um, very, very interesting. Um, I'm predominantly, I predominantly work in the kind of development space. Right. I have done some humanitarian work, but I'm more of a development so, worker. So for those who don't know the sort of the, the internal language of, of NGO land, these are non-governmental organisations aid organisations typically um, and they will do the immediate humanitarian relief you know, famine relief, direct stuff like that um, but also the long term stuff so investing yeah. in schools, investing in infrastructure, social yeah. infrastructure Yeah, so I've been with Plan International Ireland for just over five years now mm -hmm. and I work very specifically with development programmes more particularly you know it's more detail it kind of hones down further yeah. and further I work with inclusive quality education 
Right. And we, at the moment, we're working, I work predominantly with Irish Aid funded programmes. Mm -hmm. We get a really good grant from Irish Aid to work in the promotion of preschool and primary school education alongside the local governments in four countries in West Africa. Yeah. So we're operational, my particular programme that I work to, we're operational in Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, where we, where we spent the week. Um, Mali and Burkina Faso. Yeah, a fascinating part of the world. Uh, and, you know, the scale of the challenges are just in- incredible. Um, we were there to do a couple of things, or at least you were there to do those things, <laughs> and I was there watching you. Um, so, that, you know, there's a lot of time spent in the office doing detailed forensic audit stuff, papers and seeing this and seeing that. Um, but then we went out uh, up country, which extraordinary experience. Uh, I mean, the roads, one of the guys said it was like sitting inside a washing machine. Um, 90% of the country's roads are unpaved and it was rainy season. Um, Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as you put it, the roads are are not just the roads. and There's a lot of challenges in Guinea-Bissau, for example. When we, uh, when Plan originally decided that it wanted to work in West Africa, they would have looked at the Human Development Index, which Mm. is a kind of a composite um, set of indicators that are looked at by the United Nations Development Programme. So they keep, on an annual basis, they develop statistics and they look at, um, you know, life expectancy, childhood, infant mortality. They look at education rates. They look at GNP and they come up with a composite figure and they classify all at the moment there's 188 countries yeah they classify all 188 countries from the most developed down to the least developed yeah and, the, and your mental map would would you know the typical person would be perhaps unsurprised by most of that list yeah western world the europeans ourselves very luxuriously mm-hmm. uh, at the top of that scale um, and then at the bottom um, well the countries will know yeah, yeah. well the the four countries that um this program that you know, that is known as equip because it's to do with education that is in providing quality, inclusion and participation. Yeah. So the equip program is operational in these four countries and they would be among the lowest on the human development index. Yeah. So in where there's 188 countries, they're classified at about 176, 178, 180. So they're in the bottom yeah. level. So, so you're talking about 50% literacy rate population wide and and, you know, less less in, in certain areas, yeah. heavily skewed against the females. Yeah. Um, and then just on sort of basic things like access to sanitation, clean water, and uh, the standard of housing where people have to live, all, uh, you know, heartbreakingly, heartbreakingly far behind um, uh, the, the developed world. Yeah, in, indeed they are. Um, and, I mean, I think sometimes we have to be um, very careful and respectful of the conditions that the the countries are in. You know, most people who are living there have no idea of what the standards are elsewhere. So for them, you know, what we witness or what we see in comparison to our conditions and our lifestyles, we're very aware of the the difference and the the level of, the kind of diminishing level um, of of facilities. Um, But for most of those people, that's their normal everyday, day-to-day life. It It is difficult. Um, but for most of them, they don't necessarily, they've not been to other countries. They've Many people in the areas we're working in that are quite remote um, wouldn't necessarily even go down to the capital. So they would yeah. have a limited 
um, idea of what is the potential and what are the opportunities available. For us, though, as, you know, development workers, we would be looking at kind of the, the data and the statistics. So, for example, in, in a country like Guinea-Bissau, we would look at national data in relation to education. Yeah. And we would then make comparisons against the data in the, the areas that we're operational in. Yeah. And we would see really big discrepancies. I mean, even in comparison to our own education data, massive yeah. discrepancies. Yeah. But within the country, we'd see very large discrepancies. And, you know, that is, in a sense, that's heartening from the point of view of the, you know, the people investing in the project, which in this case is the Irish government through Irish aid uh, and Plan uh, Plan Ireland as, the, uh, uh, as their partner. And um, so you can actually physically see over a five-year period of the project, an increase in the number of girls getting to school, an yeah. increase in school hours spent, um, and even um, a, 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 a facilitation for handicapped kids, which is not something you would have expected yeah. to see. Now, very, very limited, um, but but at least communities are, are looking for that. And, and um, you know, a lot of the stuff that we saw was actually very heartening. Yeah, no, indeed. Um, one of the things that plan as a federation, because... Um, I mean, I work for Plan International Ireland, but we are a federation. So there is plan offices in something like 75 countries across the world. So typically, the like Plan Ireland, we partner with the local plan office in the country yeah. we work with. And that, that's the kind of relationship that exists across, um, across the, the federation. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Think you're not smart enough to own a smartphone? Well, think again and think Doro. Doro phones are designed specially with the older person in mind. They're easy to use with louder sound and larger text. Plus numerous state-of-the-art features that don't compromise on performance or quality. To learn more about the full range of high-tech Doro phones, visit doro.ie. Doro Phones. Make friends with innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, why not subscribe to Senior Times? Visit the website at seniortimes.ie and like us on Facebook. Do you know, the funny thing about PLAN is that it, it's a fairly complicated organisation, but to simplify it, you've got nearly 20 national offices in the developed world. Uh, they raise money. Um, and then you would have, uh, what, near 40, 50 odd um, local offices in, in countries where uh, projects are being run on the ground. Um, and as a structure, um, that can be great. It means we, you know, we tend to have uh, an ability to get into a country very quickly. Um, but in our case for Plan Ireland, there are areas where we specialise. And one of them is West Africa. You know, we've, we've been there long term in partnership with Irish Aid. Um, and the other one, which is you know so severe for for uh, our organisation, but for the world, is the the hunger and the Horn of Africa uh, crisis that yeah. you know, is now breaking uh, l l like a tide in that part of Africa. And uh, some people hearing it would just you know think Africa, but you know we were a continent away from uh, the, the 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 Horn of Africa where famine has started. And the challenges in West Africa, to, to me, did, didn't seem, you know, that basic uh, a, a level. You know, the people reasonably cheerful, you know, in the context of their surroundings, reasonably prosperous. And, uh, you know, you saw a lot of good stuff going on. N not the sort of desperate, uh, desperate poverty that, uh, and starvation that you'd see elsewhere. That's true. Um, I think, 
you know, I think what is going on in the Horn of Africa, and again, you know, Plan International across the Federation is looking to work and address some of the issues there. Um, but I do think in Guinea-Bissau, I think what we're looking at is more, it's not that really crisis um, stage yet because things are deteriorating in that in, in that area. But we are looking at more systemic poverty. We are looking at considerable basic needs. And, you know, just going back to the, the what we were discussing earlier um, in relation to inclusive quality education, mm. we do see that, you know, as you rightly pointed out, we do see that there's a considerable amount uh, more girls attending school and children with disabilities. That's something that is really important for plan for this program. There's a real emphasis. We're not trying to exclude working with boys, yeah. but we're looking at trying to kind of level the, the the playing field. So when you look at data and statistics, and you see that there's an awful lot more boys, or the literacy level among boys yeah. in a country is much higher than in girls, you realise that the focus there needs to be on the girls. Well, you know, one of the things that struck me was when when talking to local people over there, there's tremendous buy-in for that. Um, we, we, one of the places we were in up country was you know, very, very challenged, very remote village. But, and you know, the community leaders and people were there and uh, the local chief um, was fully bought on board, spoke himself about the importance of getting girls educated, getting girls into school um, and, you know, to the nods of, of everybody we were talking to. Um, and they, you know, they weren't just doing their board forge a bit because you and I were there, Deirdre, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, a bit. But they were sincere and they yeah. seem committed to me now. Oh, yeah. Well, you have to remember that this is the second round of funding that we've received from Irish Aid. Yeah. And both were for five years. We got an extension of a sixth year in this most recent one because of COVID. So we've worked in those communities for 11 years mm. near on. And, you know, one considerable part of the component, even though we're talking about inclusive quality education, we work with the system, we support the government, we support the structures yeah. that already exist, but we do a huge amount of work in the community yeah. because the community are the people who are sending their kids to the schools. Yes. They are the people that want to engage. So we've had long years of experience connecting with them, talking with them, working with them, listening to them. And um, we've reoriented our programme uh, over the years yeah. when you know opportunities have arisen when things have changed and we realize we need to rethink you know what it is we plan to do yeah so you know they would be very familiar with plan yeah and you know from the, 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 that's one thing that struck me as well because plan's a very small brand in ireland but uh, guinea bissau it's huge they uh, yeah. everybody very very aware we we had a meeting with the education minister and um uh, you know she spoke very highly of plan knew us very well and everybody we spoke to said please don't leave we really value your work here um, so, you know, that, that was fantastic and, and the sense of community buy-in there. Um, so, so that's West Africa. <laughs> you, you, you've been in other places as well um, because your, your NGO track record, your latest chapter is West Africa. What, what else have you been up to? Well, previously, as I mentioned earlier, I spent some time, I spent six years in Ethiopia. I worked for a number of different... Um, mostly Irish international NGOs um, and particularly again, well in some cases because there had been famine and there had been um, serious problems in the, the areas in Ethiopia that I work so in some cases I did do emergency humanitarian work but typically I was involved in development and again, you know, there were broader programs and um, mm. there was kind of agricultural components, recovery post famine and yeah. um, there was some health, there was some education so, um, generally speaking, you know, inter international development. International development, yeah. 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 And, um, you know, that, that 
often means um, working with the locals to enable the locals to do it. I mean, oh, they, always, they, always. Yeah. Not, you know, we, um, all of the programmes would, you know, connect and support and work with the local structures. Yeah. You know, so it's either with local government or with communities. Where there's a tendency, I think, in Ireland just to have a mental picture of, uh, you know, it's it's just the charity workers out there. You know, it's 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 Europeans in white coats in clinics, um, or or it's food parcels being handed out. Um, it it really isn't like that. It's it, not at all. I mean, I was often the only foreigner that was working for the organisation that I was with in that locality. I mean, I lived in villages in the middle of nowhere. People had never seen a foreigner before. Um, you know, so we, and we were embedded. I mean, I was there more as a, for oversight and management. I was yeah. always supporting and upskilling staff to take over my job. I was always making myself redundant, yeah. which is a brilliant approach. But it meant that, you know, I was working an awful lot with local people, local staff, hmm. who were then working with local organisations, with the local community. So, uh, you know, an awful lot of international development is carried out at that very community-based level. It's not, you know, that yeah. idea of, I mean, that goes back to a very it, old it, model. It, it is, yeah. And do, the other cliche or, you know, thing that people will ask you is, is it safe? Uh, now, I, I'm, I'm no expert here, but I certainly felt safe in Guinea-Bissau, felt safe from the people. Yeah. Um, I, you didn't seem as if there were actual proper cops, if you genuinely needed a proper cop. And you might come across, say, you know, a guy sitting in front of the ATM machine in some sort of quasi-military uniform with a, with a gun in his lap. Um, but it never, never felt unsafe. Yeah. Uh, now, that's not true everywhere. Obviously. Yeah, no, I would agree with you. I mean, Guinea-Bissau does, it really does feel like a, a safe place. Yeah. I mean, we could walk down around downtown Bissau, which is, you know, yeah. a very interesting old kind of Portuguese style uh, building, yeah. very run down. Very run down. Um, but um, we could wander around there completely freely with and no local, real concern. The, yeah, the locals are lovely. You wander into a shop, uh, talk, ask directions if you needed to. Yeah. No remote concern about anything like that. And you're not getting stared at all the time either, which I thought might have not at all actually it's quite different for example in Ethiopia where I believe you've also been, been to and well, yeah. you know in Ethiopia as a foreigner you get a lot of attention you mm. get followed you get asked questions all the time and um, whereas in West Africa it's very different it's very low-key in yeah. all of the countries that I, I've worked in there it's very low-key you can wander anywhere people are they greet you in a friendly way they're not concerned about who you yeah. are what you're doing it, you know not very far away from Guinea-Bissau is Mali um, and, but it, 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 you've been there too. But a country, a country like that, um, you 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 simply can't. You you the security concerns are too great. You have to follow the rules. You can't poke your nose out of the hotel. Yeah, no. It's Mali and Burkina Faso, unfortunately, more recently, is becoming quite a, a hot spot. Um, we have a program. The same program, the Equip program, is operational in Timbuktu. Um, which by all accounts is an absolutely amazing place yeah. and has huge educational needs. So it's a really good location for us to be working in. Mm. However, it is absolutely a no-go area for any foreigners. Yeah. It's just, um, I mean, even when I when I go there, the team come down to work with me in the capital, there's very strict rules. I go from the a high security yeah. hotel to the the office and back again. No outside, no going out, no nothing. You know, it's it's, and you know, a lot of the issue there is um, Mali was a former French colony. There's a lot of yeah. um, issues with between France and Mali and 
typically, you know, there's a quite a high level of um, Muslim fundamentalist jihadi activity. Yeah. And typically, they if they see a foreigner, they assume a foreigner is uh, a French person and a legitimate. That sounds well, like a say a legitimate target, potentially a target yeah. in their eyes. Um, now, you know, we obviously have to be very cautious. Plan has very strict um, security rules. So obviously, yeah. if we're in a country that there's any level of risk, we're very cautious. We follow well, all know, of the security it, it, rules. It, it, rather, how many think plan frontline staff actually are in countries of very high risk? And, and yeah. it, it, it would, I, I wouldn't be going out there, and rightly so. You know, it's only for people who really, truly know what they're doing. Yeah. But they are at the sharp end yeah. as well. Um, and, and very different space, the humanitarian relief, disaster relief at the sharp end. The, the development space is probably, it's obviously more long-term by definition, but probably more rewarding for that reason. Well, I'm not sure that you can say one is more rewarding than, than the other. I think they're, they're very different. I think there's a, a real need, and I think, I mean, I have done, you know, humanitarian emergency work. Um, and I have seen, you know, it was at a time of uh, famine in Ethiopia. And, you know, when you see people presenting for, you know, to get food um, bringing children that are severely malnourished, you know, that is knowing that, you know, the, the structure, the system, the international mechanism has kicked yeah. in and is able to support, you know, those people and assist them and try and get them to recover from the famine. And mm. um, that is hugely rewarding. Yeah. The There are people who work in that space that really feel that. I work in that space and I just feel the tragedy of it. I don't mm. get... I, it's not that I should get excited. I think it's amazing that you can assist people who are, are hungry. Yeah. But I actually just see the bigger picture of there's something seriously broken that is yeah. leading to this situation. And I want to, to work with that kind of underlying systemic and um, longer term slow burn and, problem. Yeah, and you know, on the HDI index, the global index, I suppose by some measures the globe has become a much better place. Um, uh, but maybe rightly, it, you know, it makes where it's going badly wrong much more the focus of attention. Um, I mean, we found even in chatting to people locally in Guinea-Bissau, the, the war in Ukraine is directly affecting Guinea-Bissau and is you know, being debated by locals down there because it affects yeah. them directly. Yeah, and it, it's true. I think the world is, you know, that expression, the world is a village. Mm. I think that more and more, I think we do live in a much more interconnected, interdependent world. And I suppose, you know, I think when things started in Ukraine, I don't think any of us really thought about the longer term implications. Mm. None of us, I never realised how much grain it was exported from Ukraine to other countries. Yeah, the fir fir first thought was the price of diesel. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Diesel yeah. got pricey. Yeah, well, I mean, in one of the countries, um, one of my colleagues who's working on the humanitarian side, um, she was meant to travel out to Cameroon, and um, no, Central African Republic, one or the other. Yeah. And they actually, the, the office out there said, you can't come because we can't get fuel to put in the cars to be able to transport you. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that's the level of implication that it's having. That means that, you know, local staff aren't necessarily, you know, obviously it's more important that local staff are engaging with the work that they're doing yeah, there. Yeah. But if they're having challenges on getting fuel for them to oversee the work. One of the things I was saying to uh, somebody since I've been back, uh, just practical things that wouldn't have occurred to me. And um, a very, very useful thing is a moto, a small motorbike. And one of the things that Plan has done is provide motos to school inspectors in remote areas. Yeah. It's, 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 it's the practical help, really, that surprises yeah. you. 
Yeah, I mean, in the past, school inspectors would have cycled. Mm. I mean, you've seen yeah, the state of the, the roads. You can imagine a school inspector cycling around to schools in, in quite a wide area. Um, and yes, it's made a huge difference to, you know, the school inspectors can actually go out. It means they can visit more regularly. They can do more support yeah. with the, the staff. They can do more observation. They can feed more, you know, into the whole kind of teacher training area mm. in a more cohesive way. And another really exciting thing that um, school inspectors are doing, and we've been working uh, in supporting this, UNICEF had moved towards the digitization of data collection. Now, right. for us, that just sounds so normal. Yeah. But in the past, the data would have been collected on a piece of paper from a notebook that, you yeah. know, and it would have been given to the inspector and it would have slowly worked its way up through the system to be inputted as final data. If, now they're using mobile phones, they're yeah. using tablets that we work with, and, you know, on training, and they can upload the data directly into a central kind of database. And data is now becoming easier, more accessible, more correct Much as well. more correct, because yeah. that has been one of the problems. And where this is crucially important is in things like birth registration, and particularly birth registration for females. Um, because Guinea-Bissau, I guess like most countries, you know, has a, has a legal commitment to providing schools for kids, uh, just physically unable to do it. Um, but birth registration is really helpful in, in getting particularly girls their rights, and also in protecting them against uh, forced marriage and child marriage. It is really, really important. And I worked on a project in um, with Plan in Senegal where um, we were looking at that whole area of children recognising what their rights are. Yeah. And that girls and boys mm -hmm. would know what is the legal age for marriage. And again, that they would, if anybody was trying to forcefully, you know, yes. um, arrange a marriage for them, a girl could go to the local chief. And because she had her birth certificate, she knew the marriage age was yeah. 16, unfortunately, in Senegal. But if she was, you know, 14, she could go to an authority figure in her community and say, help. Yeah. And they were finding as a result of this that it was working more and more children were being protected from, um, you know, and, forced and, marriage. And, 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 and what I found uh, refreshing too was that the authorities were willing to help. I mean, at, at least judging by their words, because as I say, we had a meeting with the minister and uh, she, she, interesting in itself, <laughs> um, was full of the language of, of inclusion and, um, you know, seemed seemed determined about it. Yeah. Well, I think they are. I mean, I... You know, I do believe that the minister and the regional, you know, figures of authority in the departments mm. of education and the ministries of education in the countries we work with, they really are committed to it. They really do believe that their children have a right yeah. to education. They've tried, they, in, in uh, Guinea-Bissau, they have committed to trying to ensure that every child completes six years of six years of primary education. Yeah. So the six over six. Yeah. You see posters all over the country for this. Now, where they have committed to it, they have a huge challenge in actually meeting that because yeah. the ministry, like it's one of many ministries that needs to be funded by central coffers yeah. and they do not have enough funding to, to support the, the aspirations yeah. that they have for their education system. So I think no, no more than ourselves, the minister is committed, the yeah. staff are really committed to it. It's the, the, wherewithal. It's the wherewithal. And yet, you know, we also met, uh, we met a girl, young woman, I suppose you have to say, who had returned to education after uh, getting married far yeah. too young. Uh, and she's now involved in the Parents' Association and, you know, all sorts of great stuff. And um, there were uh, boys going back into primary education, despite the fact that they were now 13, 14 years of age and doing 
the curriculum for seven, eight year olds. Um, so you know, depressing to be that far behind, but encouraging to see. Um, uh, yeah, see. no, it, that is very true. Yeah. Um, up till not too many years ago, many of the countries that we're working in wouldn't allow married girls yeah. to go back to school. Now that has all changed. The government has, governments have typically recognised that that's a bad thing. Um, uh, but you've got to recognise also that those girls are actually very lucky that they were able to come back because often when they're married, yeah. their husband has an expectation that they're going to stay at home, that they're going to have children and so on. So those girls were really lucky. But again, I mean, we met another girl um, who was probably maybe 14 or 15 and she was in fourth class. Yeah. She, and she explained to us um, that she had done the school that she was attending um, only had four of the six primary school classes available yeah. Yeah. because of lack of funding and lack of teachers and lack of classrooms. Yeah. That girl told us that she had done every single year in that school twice yeah. because she didn't want to finish school and she didn't want to leave. The nearest school that she could move on to, if she wanted to finish her primary, and she was in fourth class, which typically that would be a, a, like a nine-year-old, ten-year-old yeah. in yeah. Ireland, and she was about 14 or 15. If she wanted to complete her primary education, she would have to cycle a round trip of 32 kilometres to the nearest next school that had the, yeah. you know, the following years. Impossible. Impossible. That. And, and the child was, was, you know, demanding the right to stay in school. It was uh, overwhelming. I mean, she it, was, she, it was amazing to hear to somebody so young, yeah. so confident to stand up in front of all of us, yeah. you know, the, the school principal and um, other planning uh, I, colleagues. I think, I think her, el her elders were a little mortified looking at her, but actually she was terrific. And well, she you know, so well. I, could, yeah. I was watching the school principal yeah. and I could see he was so proud of her. Yeah, I really I felt so, yeah. his chest was, you know, puffing <laughs> up as she spoke. You know, so. so so listen. I I came away with a lot of positives, um, and uh, absolutely fascinating experience to have had. Um, you've been around in terms of your your experience, etc., and you've seen a lot of quite different places. Um, and also, you're very much in touch with Ireland because you're actually you're based here in Ireland, even though you're out in the field a lot. Um, so, in the broadest sense, are you optimistic about the next twenty, thirty? 50 years uh, of, of, you know, of the future for the countries you've been working in? Or... Yes, yes, I am optimistic. Um, you know, when I look, and again, you saw this as well, when we look at the data, yeah. you know, and the achievements, I, and I'm talking now very particularly about one programme that I work with, but when yeah. we have looked at the data and we've looked at over the number of years that Plan has been working with some of those schools, going back over the 11 years, yeah. if you were to look at the number of girls 11 years ago and the number of girls now yeah. attending those schools, the numbers have really increased. If you look at the number of children with disability, because yeah. typically in the past, children with disability would have been hidden away in hidden at home. Away. Yes. I mean, it was like that here in Ireland oh, a long yeah, time ago. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, so, but now, and again, you know, the kind of children with disabilities we're talking about here are like disabilities. Um, but children with disabilities, uh, there's a huge increase in the number of those children in school. So when you look at the kind of th those, the immediate, in relation to the work that I'm doing now, if you look at that kind of data, um, yes, you do see that there's improvements. In the bigger context, I am, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist. I wouldn't mm. be doing this work if I was anything but. Um, I do believe that things should get better, can get better, and will get better. 
the one thing that we need to do if we are if things are to improve is we need in in kind of the western world the the global north we yeah. need to assume a level of kind of responsibility we need to contribute we need to support and we need to assist these you know all of the countries that are at the lowest level of on the human development index they're not there for no reason you know they've oppor- they should have the opportunity they should be able to progress. But, you know, there's so many um, constraining uh, yeah. elements. But I, I think that we need to, to step up. I think it's wonderful that, you know, governments give a percentage of, you know, their... Fairly their, modest percentage. Well, yes. But, but at least yes. a commitment. Yeah. Well, they, and they have made... The Irish government have made a commitment to um, increase up to 2030 under the, for the SDGs. But they have committed to increasing up to 2030. So yeah. let's just watch that space and see. Watch, yeah, let's just watch that space. I mean, I, th- I would think ultimately for countries like Guinea-Bissau or, or any of the other challenged parts of the world to succeed long term, um, with all the help they can get, it will still require a, a bit more global justice in things like yeah. trade rules and oh, uh, totally. resources. Yeah, and I agree with you. I think there's there's a lot of factors, but I do think you know that we're not we're not trying to develop any form of dependency. I think through development assistance, mm-hmm. I think the idea behind it is very much to to support and assist where we can, so that there's longer term kind of sustainable development. That it will be something that once you know donors or once international NGOs are no longer there, it is sustainable at a community level. Yeah. Do you know? And that would always be a really prime part of our objectives when we're working in a country. Yeah. And um, that, you know, we don't want to, and that's why we always would work with the system. We don't want to, um, with this equip program, for example, we don't want to walk away at the end of a five or a six year funding cycle and see that all of the, the work that we have done just collapses because yeah. we're no longer there. Yeah. Do you know? Uh, uh, well, true. I mean, if you must exit at all, I suppose taper out if you can. But, um, you know, there's clearly a lot of work still to be done in, in that part of the world. Um, so fascinating. Where next for you then? Because how many weeks consecutively are you going to spend in Ireland before you have to scoot <laughs> off somewhere else? I'm here for a couple of months and then I'm off to Guinea, which is again in part of this Equip uh, yeah, programme. Yeah. Um, and then this little, in, this little four or five country region just under the bulge of Africa's that's right. west yeah. coast yeah so and Guinea has very similar it's very similar it's the exact same program effectively that we're running there um, in a very remote area of Guinea um, and then after that Al will be going to and you'll be making sure that the guys have spent the right money on their little motos and have uh, you know accounted correctly for the I've seen you do it send them all <laughs> pull them out of meetings to go and get files and uh, to make sure it's all working it's all working smoothly so you'll be doing yeah. that bit of oversight I will actually be going to visit the project area it's a two and a half day drive up country so yeah so you know um, and yeah. the road the roads there are equally bad well, well a two and a half hour two and a half hour drive will shake the fillings out of your teeth so that's well, two and a half days yeah so um, and then yeah in November I go to uh, Burkina Faso and Mali but again in both of those cases I will be office based it's just not considered safe enough for me to go to the project yeah. area yeah um, um, uh, so so fascinating stuff and if people want to know more about it um, there, there's plan.ie which yeah. is uh, plan's website here uh, my full declaration I'm on the board of plan have been for, for, for many years thoroughly enjoyed um, and Deirdre you've been five years with plan 
currently. Currently, yeah. Uh, currently, uh, um, but what, 20 years plus in the space. A bit longer than that. Well, I'm yes, not going to admit admit how many years, but most of my professional life has either been in international NGOs or with national kind of community development. And, um, you know, we've just, uh, we're looking forward to getting funding, further funding from Irish Aid mm-hmm. um, to work again in those same, that same area in those same countries. So, I mean, as long as I'm a plan, I'd say that's where I'll be. Yeah, Very good. You know? And, you know, it's a little bit heartening to see the, you know, the Irish government logo um, on the on the on the side of the Jeep, the Toyota Hilux Jeep, that we were a magnificent machine, um, and just sort of evidence of you know this, this is where the aid money actually physically goes yeah. when it leaves Ireland. It was actually very heartening to see. Yeah, no, I agree. And we also you visit a school and you see the Irish government logo yeah. as well. You know. Um, I, it's not I, the only one. The Chinese were in evidence. Well, yes, yeah. that's true. That's true. That's <laughs> rather a different uh, approach to yeah. the yeah. Irish government's approach to aid and development assistance. Yeah. Um, so it's a uh, fascinating, a thoroughly enjoyable week. I uh, wouldn't rule it out, uh, you know, do, doing it again sometime, someplace. Well, you're very welcome to accompany me on another trip yeah, if you want. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, listen, Deirdre Murray, pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Connor. So that's Deirdre Murray and Plan International Ireland. I hope you enjoyed the chat. Do remember to check out previous episodes where I meet people like Dermot Ferreter, Nuala Carey, Frankie Sheehan, Teresa Mannion, Paul Williams and others. It's all there on seniortimes.ie or wherever you get your podcasts. Just Google Driving Life with Connor Faulkner and you can email me at connorfaulkner at gmail.com. Until next time, drive safely, live happily and come back and see us again. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations.